0: Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more, about how gardens have shaped their lives and informed their work today, with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetearstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class lists, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. My guest today is Jennifer Jewell, gardener, author, and host of Cultivating Place, a co production and podcast of North State Public Radio, a program syndicated across the United States and available as a podcast worldwide. For listeners of a garden podcast in North America, much less one produced in Northern California on indigenous land, Jennifer probably needs no introduction. In many ways, she has shaped a corner of garden culture and literacy, introducing listeners to gardeners across the globe and the remarkable beings in their own backyard. Her interviews and writing are focused on the importance of the person and place in the garden, considering the land, its history and culture, and is always moving toward a more sustainable, inclusive whole. I am always inspired by her unwavering faith that we can meet the incredible challenges of our current time with community, care, and an embrace of the interconnectedness of our natural world. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to have you. It is a great treat to be here. Thank you, Jill. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and your
1: work. Sure. I consider myself a gardener. I also happen to be a writer about gardens and an advocate for gardens and gardeners. And I host a public radio program and podcast entitled Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden, which is syndicated around the country and goes out to podcast listeners every week around the world. And my most definitive philosophy in life is that gardeners are incredible potential agents and spaces for positive change. And they run across every intersection we can think of. And that if I can move even one or two gardeners towards embracing and living into the full power of what gardens and gardeners can bring to the world, then I have met my own personal goal.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. And is that something that you came to over time? Have you always known the power of gardening or when did you realize this? I certainly
1: have always known the love of gardening. I remember once asking one of my aunts who was the head gardener at the historic home of James Monroe in Charlottesville, Virginia, why she gardened and she was sort of like hmm did i have a choice (laughs) it's like breathing and i am one of the lucky people that i was raised with gardening as part of my everyday life and cultural literacy my mother was a professional gardener and florist and my father is a wildlife biologist and so there was this very natural marriage as it were of (laughs) our gardens being very much contextualized in the ecosystems and natural history of wherever we were living. So geology, hydrology, geologic time, and then, of course, the larger faunal life that my father was very interested in. So, And then as I grew up, I became a young adult, and started to garden on my own, not just with my parents or under my parents' supervision. And I fell in love. I mean, literally, I think every gardener out there knows what I mean. In that first garden, in that first spring where you wake up every day and you're like, I just gotta get out there and see what's happening. Yes. (laughs) And I need that plant and that plant, and oh, what about that plant? And that very much was a powerful moment in my own sort of adulting as a young 20 something. And then I began writing about gardens and I wrote for glossy magazines and newspapers. My first writing sort of position for gardens or about gardens was actually with a simplicity a newspaper on Finney Ridge in the Seattle neighborhood of Finney Ridge, which was just above the neighborhood where myself and my husband at the time were living Ballard. And it was a simple living philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that's where I first started writing about gardens. I then graduated into writing about gardens for glossy sort of home magazines, which I had always loved and I still love looking at them, but it became clear pretty quickly to me that there was a disconnect between how those media sources were depicting gardens and how I experienced gardens and gardeners, especially when it came to environment or economics or social. I mean, we wouldn't have used the word social justice at the time, but a full representation was missing in all of those arenas. And you know you kind of look back as a middle-aged middle-class white person and you're like, how did that happen? And clearly you look back 150 years, you look back 400 years and you can see this progression of where money goes and where it gets consolidated and then who's trying to market to that, you know, money and that leisure time. And so you can see where it happened, but the abdication of that representation by those of us who garden, mm-hmm. I think, was just ignored for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And it was unsettling and unacceptable. And so when I first started my first radio program in 2007 on my public radio channel here in Northern California, it was like the perfect idea in my mind at that moment because you didn't have to look at anything. Like nothing had to be reach, you know, an, an, a single aesthetic and it was public radio. So I didn't have to like work out any marketing issues. And you could just hear the voice of gardening and that could be full spectrum. And then it graduated into Cultivating Place in 2016. And it, it was the same idea. My first program was just locally based in my 10 county region here in Northern California. And there was this really interesting social overlay on this history of the program, which some of which was invisible to me at the time, but took me deeper and deeper in. The first being that I started the first version of the program to get away from the two-dimensional, superficial representation of gardening as this like pretty place with a lot of throw pillows. And it happened at the same time as the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have this huge uptick in interest in gardening at that moment. And then as it grew, the program and then the podcast, you know, we have all of these further overlays in terms of, you know, environmental crisis, economic crisis, social justice crisis. And they have all just increased my understanding of just how important gardening can be individually and communally. So the universe keeps telling me, yes, you're right. You're right. Keep going. Not you're right, but this is a good instinct. And these are interesting stories of people and organizations that I would rather focus on than everything that's going wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now it seems like there is a lot of
1: solutions in the garden,
0: Well, I had a really interesting interview with
1: a man this last week. And we were talking about that pressure and that conundrum, if you will, of seeing our gardens as like the solutions and the pressure that that puts on us and on our gardens to be like the silver bullet and the importance of not again being in like a simplistic or binary mindset with our gardens at that level either that that is too easy to be like we can garden our way out of this because yes. it is you know as we know gardens and gardeners and the money and time and soil that they put into this activity can be as much a part of the problem as they can be as part of the solution so i think you know for me what keeps also becoming highlighted is the importance of letting the garden grow us. Yeah. To learn more, to see more, to be more, to surrender more, I think.
0: Yeah. No, definitely. I think the pressure creates almost a misalignment in terms of maybe it's important to do what you can. And again that almost the observational process that happens. You want to do more because you have you know this land to care for and that sort of relationship, but also the idea that we are not individually, well collectively we can cause change. There are some there are some really big global sort of governmental policies that if they continue, we will never sort of garden our way out of almost.
1: (laughs) Yep. And that's where the mindset comes in, right? So that we, we don't just spend our gardening time and love and energy, but we also allow that to direct how we spend our dollars and our votes and our other advocacy. And we just also, I think for me, I get so serious so fast because so many of these topics, as we all do, I think I'm not Mm -hmm. alone at all in this, but everything feels so grave and everything feels so urgent that I think the other greatest gift of the garden is just play and joy and being. And, you know, I think you having a one and a half year old and a four year old, have an access to that that's important for the rest of us to remember and not forget because I remember that with my children just being outside and you literally do nothing but like move stones from here to there for an you know for two hours and you're like no that was good that was a great use of this morning
0: yes yeah definitely There are no preconceived notions or expectations about what something needs to look like or be, and it's just, yeah.
1: (laughs) Or who's in control, right? (laughs) Right, Or who's in control,
0: or what is edible. (laughs)
1: Lots
0: of layers there. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't notice the beginning of your podcasting or, or radio life being in at the beginning of the recession because it was also during, you know, lockdown where some of your most recent books came out. And so I was wondering, why do you think that increasing garden interest happened? It seemed very punctuated in that recession time and in the, you know, global health and recession time of COVID.
1: Well, I think across all historical records A downturn in the economy always correlates with an uptick in both gardening and agriculture. Yeah. And what's interesting, right? And I had a fascinating discussion with the director of the garden at Smith College, who had been with Seed Savers Exchange. And he said, What's funny about that is that we know it's actually more expensive to grow our own food than it is to buy it at the store. So this correlation is speaking not to an actual economic reality, but to a psychological human reality of what our instincts tell us to lean into. Mm-hmm. And part of that is self-sufficiency or, or the concept of it. And another part of that, I think, is just engaging with our own survival in a way that reminds us we could feed ourselves if we really had to. Mm -hmm. Now, granted it would be, it is the rare person in this day and age that can grow enough, you know, potatoes or onions or tomatoes to actually feed your entire household for an entire year. But just the feeling that we can grow some of our own food is very soothing psychologically and subconsciously. Yeah. So there has always been this this correlation between where the economy is and where our garden interests are. I was fortunate in that, you know, I was working on my first book, The Earth in Her Hands in 2017 and 2018. It published in 2020. Yeah. But I had already been working on it and that took me very deeply into researching the idea of why, and hopefully helping to address a little bit of how we represent gardeners. Mm-hmm. And so it landed at a moment when people were really ready to hear, like, yes. why is it that our gardening world has been portrayed in one way, which is a seriously impoverished and diminished version of what our gardening world actually is. Yeah. And how do we address that and offset it and change it? Because I think if there's one thing we know to be true about gardening is that all people across all socioeconomic levels, across all geographic locations, across all historic periods have gardened. Yes. All of them. Yeah. Everywhere across time. And sometimes people will kind of push back on that and say, well, you know, but that was subsistence- farming, not actual gardening. But we know that's not true either. We know that even small farm holders in Mesopotamia in the fifth century were also growing medicinal herbs and flowers for beauty and flowers for human decoration and makeup and perfume. And so we know that it is not just about subsistence food ever.
0: Yeah. I've spoken about Sue Stuart Smith's book, before, um, but I think it's wonderful for many reasons, but one is that kind of making that connection for me to this, you know, millennia, you know, almost of uh, human development that we really are coded to do this. It is, you know, they were hunter-gatherer gardeners, who shifted their spots for gardening and everything. So it's, yeah, it's very much, I think it's an interesting reflection for me, sort of a coda almost to the technological mismatch that people are experiencing and sort of that information overload. This is actually something, no wonder we go back to it because it's it's sort of what we we're, we're made to do. You know, we've really developed with it.
1: Yes, it is on par. It lost that recognition as being on par, yeah. but it is absolutely on par with music, with mm-hmm you know, literature with performing arts. And of course, they always say gardening is the slowest of the performing
0: arts. (laughs) Yes.
1: And song and dance, it's, you know, prayer. It is all of those things put together for those of us who are called to that expression. Yeah. And I, I recognize that not everybody is, but I also do firmly believe that we, you know, if someone said to me, I'm not at all interested in gardening, you could find some degree of separation wherein they actually are they just don't know it and they don't necessarily you know I have two daughters one of whom is you know you could tell right from the minute they were in the garden as little people one of them is a real like digger grower planter the other one is a floral arranger like she wants to cut all the flowers mm-hmm. and play with them yes but that's both kinds of gardening yeah and there's as we know as many ways to garden as there are people gardening exactly
0: When you included your daughters in the garden, was there anything in particular that you wanted to frame for them or share with them? Or did you sort of let them find their own way?
1: (laughs) I just wanted to be outside and for them to run around and be free and get their energy sorted out so that we weren't stuck in the house going, whoa, stop fighting with your sister. (laughs) No, there was absolutely no educational overlay intentionally. I mean, I was not intentional about that either way. I just wanted us to be outside and I wanted to be in the garden and they were relatively safe in the garden. I think the garden was not necessarily always safe from small children. And so I had like rules. So we did a lot of crafts and like play things in the garden so that I could actually get something done and they were occupied. But one of my rules was you could cut only as many flowers as you were old every day. So like, like you know, and then by the time they got old enough, they didn't really, you know, they were like, whatever, I'm not hanging out with you, mom. (laughs) So they were off at school. So that helped for the whole garden not to be cut down and the heads popped off the way kids do. (laughs) But I will say that after the fact, and those years of one to five are sort of a blur for most mothers who are doing it full time, and even probably more of a blur for those that are working outside the house and being a primary caregiver. But after the fact, it is clear to me that they learned a lot in the garden and that I learned a lot in the garden just by osmosis, right? Yeah, absolutely. And those are
0: all good things. Totally. No, it's uh, all this sort of against overlay of like STEM, you know, STEM learning and interpersonal, all this sort of stuff. It's like, just let them play in the garden. I'll figure it out. Just play. Yeah, yeah, You will figure it out. Yeah. (laughs) So you have built gardens in different locations and, and growing zones, which I think is so interesting. And so I was wondering if you could describe a few of those, like the Seattle garden, as you made your way down through California and where they were, and maybe anything that influenced you at those times, you know, what you learned.
1: Yeah, I think, again, I have just been very, very lucky in that I have family all over the country and in the UK, and I have a very close-knit family on both sides. So that meant that I got to spend a lot of time in these different areas. I had a grandfather in interior South Carolina, sort of central South Carolina, and then grandparents just outside of Boston. And I was born and raised at 8,000 feet in Colorado, where my mother and father had moved for him to do his PhD work and we stayed west while the rest of our family stayed east. And so it meant that I had, it's nice, I think other gardeners will recognize this, that you know, it's fun to go to different zones and get a sense of how different plant palettes actually are. And again, you experience this and it's not that I understood it at the time, but Mm -hmm. you know, you go to South Carolina and you see live oaks and hanging Spanish moss and big magnolias and a very different feel than what I was seeing up in the Northeast, you know, where you see great big sugar maples. And we saw none of that in Colorado where we lived with ponderosa pines. And because my parents were who they were you know they gave names to those things for me so when I was an adult it allowed me a sort of like vocabulary for different kinds of gardens and different kinds of plant palettes which I think helped me to feel more comfortable in talking to different gardeners wherever they may be or in different zones, but it also just allowed me to love different kinds of plantings in their places. That said, my very first own garden in Seattle, Washington, was a little bit like dying and going to heaven. <laughs> Or like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, because you can grow almost anything in that Zone 9, you know, maritime climate there. And of course, it's a fantastic garden community, very international. And I was there at sort of the heyday of the big plant specialty perennial Plant growers like Heronswood, and so you know you would go. The, Lorene Edwards Forkner, who's a, a gardener and an author, and she had a fantastic little nursery, which was my own community nursery called Fremont Gardens. And I would just be like, I got my paycheck. I'm going to the nursery and <laughs> you know see what what's new. So there was a lot of plant lust. I will say that I learned two of my most important lessons in life right in that garden. The first one being that growing roses, which I love, I love old roses, in a humid climate that doesn't get enough sun is a nightmare and leads you down the path of chemical inputs that you don't want to go down. And I went down for a very short minute and then realized, so this was about the same time I was having my first child. Mm-hmm. And during my first pregnancy, my father sent me and my sisters a book. It was a good book to send your childbearing children because it was all about the presence of dioxin in um, everything, in, oh gosh. In, flame, in flame retardant put on
0: everything.
1: And the research at that time, so this is 1998 or something, the research was already showing that it was showing up in our breast milk. And of course I'm already pregnant. So I'm like, I'm already like poisoning (laughs) my child. But it brought to my attention, the fact that the rose fertilizer I was giving had a systemic pesticide, fungicide in it. And that that was poison. And like, had this correlation not happened at that moment, I would never like. You just wouldn't have known because nobody said. They said, "Oh, just use use a full systemic fertilizer right. on your roses," and you know, it didn't have the skull and crossbones on it. So you know, you just did it. And luckily, that was a very short period of time. And these two things came together, and I was like, "No chemicals ever again." Yeah. And the same lesson came to me about invasive plants because I was so enamored of new plants and I was this new gardener in this great growing zone. And I had, I forget which one it was. It was either a grass or a broom Mm -hmm. and it totally seeded all around my garden. And I thought, this is not right. And so I came up to speed pretty quickly on the issue of invasive plants and it curbed my voracious appetite for plants enough that I would research anything I was concerned about or showed a tendency before I would put it in my garden. But again, these are educational arcs that all gardeners, I think, go through. But if our cultural consciousness about them is such... That we can, that gardeners can learn this more quickly, or without those kinds of dangerous mistakes even being possible.
0: Yeah, the better off we are. Definitely, it is amazing though how the lessons you learn from the mistakes and the failures are the learned the the best sort of.
1: Oh God, yeah, they're hard. They're hard lessons,
0: but you remember them. Yeah, since that information coming out, you know, that's almost like the beginning of a lot of toxicity information and, and even mm-hmm. actually invasives information. So it's, you are experiencing without a lot of writing on it, which you do actually. <laughs> so just to share that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything from that garden that you still have in your garden today? Or can you share where you are, what your zone is and everything? Oh yeah.
1: So that was my first garden. And then we, my husband at the time and I went to the United Kingdom for him to do a fellowship and I didn't have working papers. So I was with my oldest girl who was one at the time. And we went all around England in the little car we had and she just traveled in the back with her little play suitcase (laughs) and we visited gardens and I I worked unofficially off the books, don't tell the government of the United Kingdom, (laughs) as a gardener for a a garden, a home garden in Budley-Salterton, which was great. And I worked underneath another gardener, an older woman. Who was so fantastic. And I just remember her, just the way she said compost. Yes. <laughs> but she taught me a lot about mulch and about compost and mm-hmm. about working with her orchard trees. Anyway, so we were there for a couple of years and then came back and we were back in Colorado, which is where both he and I were from. And so I raised my, both of them, we had our second daughter while in England and then came back. And so then I was gardening at, you know, 6,000 feet on the front range of Colorado. And then we moved to Northern California in 2007. And I would say the plants that always travel with me, no matter what, if I can physically grow them would be old roses. I always garden with a lot of natives to the area that I'm in. And in Northern California, I'm lucky because there are beautiful sages you know, salvias. There are beautiful manzanitas. We're just blessed with, you know, native diversity here. Being in the interior, as opposed to in Berkeley, I can't grow as much as you can grow, but I can grow a lot, which is fun. But so the, the plants that travel with me that are sentimental are definitely old roses. I plant nasturtiums and sweet peas every year, and I have a ton of herbs. So a lot of oreganos and a lot of different times so that I always have something to go in the kitchen, whether for tea or food. I'm not a great cook, but I will put, you know, thyme and chives into anything and, and yeah. people think it's fancier. <laughs> so that's good.
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. And you've written before that you, that your current garden carries all these stories and kind of the different seasons and moments of your life. And so is there anything um, when you sort of look out that you sort of, when you wrote that, that you were thinking of specifically?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say that my former husband and I were divorced about seven years ago so the the little house I'm in now is, you know, kind of like a little cottage and and I definitely created the garden to be a comfort, an embrace, and it has absolutely been that for me. As I am speaking to you and I look out my front window, which I think maybe was like a dining room for the people that were here before, but I can look down a street and like I'm at the end of a street. I'm not on a cul-de-sac, but I'm at like the intersection of two streets and one street dead ends into my house, which has some serious feng shui issues. If you like (laughs) get that kind of input from anybody, yeah, because you don't really want cars driving straight at your house. But so (laughs) I worked with the plants to create this sort of hedge of roses out the front of, and they're iceberg roses. So they're really industrial, like bulletproof plants, which are thorny enough to like send the energy back out into the road, but not so thorny that they're in the way. And then in front of that, I have a whole sort of, it's almost like a hedgerow now of native deer grass and native purple sage, native low-growing manzanita, a manzanita called Big Sur. And that combination of the evergreen manzanitas and the very silvery kind of furry purple sage with the fountain deer grass, is just, it's a beautiful effect. And yeah. so I can I don't even see the street because the the hedge has grown up that all I see are the roses and the tops of the salvia and then the field that's in the far distance. And there's a little inner courtyard out in the front between my window and this entry hedge that is just, it's lovely. Like I can, you know, it's very small and it takes very little maintenance or inputs for me in terms of water or you know, compost or anything, but I get to watch the little hummingbirds come in and I get to see dragonflies and I get to see the weather moving across to the south and, and it's a very small space, but it provides all of that sort of life and visual dynamic seasonality all through the year. Cause I spend a lot of time sitting at my desk, Jill. Yes, (laughs) So it is, you know, when I'm not out in the garden, I'm at my desk and this is just like the garden is always with me. So that's, that's always nice. That's
0: wonderful. And what is your daily practice in the garden or your seasonal practice? Sometimes you're indoors.
1: Well, again, it is much more a facet of what it tells me to do mm-hmm. rather than my intentionality. But I, if there's anything that is regular and intentional, it is that I take my coffee out into the garden every morning to say, good morning. Mm-hmm. And I take my glass of wine out in the back garden to look at the North Star and say good night every night. Then as I walk out to empty the compost from the kitchen every day, I end up watering or deadheading or, or moving something or picking some flowers or, and as I walk in the house from the front every day, I'm like, Ooh, I have to do that. Or I have to do that. And there is no set schedule. The best time to do something in the garden is when you actually have the time and you make the time. So that is kind of how, how it works for me. You know, some things you have to do, like I planted my bulbs in the fall and, and I deadhead the roses when they're done. And I cut the deer grass back every year. But otherwise it's pretty it really does take care of itself for the most part.
0: That's great. And do you have any garden influences today that you sort of look to or follow? I mean that you've you've introduced us to so many. I imagine you have a lot, but
1: I think like you experienced as well doing your podcast. I am influenced by every gardener I speak to, you know, sometimes to the point of ridiculousness where I, you know, speak to somebody who specializes in hydrangeas and I think, I should get more hydrangeas, you know, and there's like, I have no business on this green earth growing a hydrangea (laughs) in interior Northern California. But I would say at this point, I have no single influence except probably still just my mother and her relative both continuity, but not rigidity in the garden. And I think my partner, John Whittlesey, who is a plants person is my other great influence in that he is a native plant advocate and a kind of simplicity mindset advocate. And I think that influences a lot. He has helped to design all areas of this garden that I'm in now. And I'm big into natives. I'm big into plants that actually provide any habitat function. So, you know, those plants that I put in that bring in the hummingbirds and the native bees and the bumblebees and the dragonflies and the wasps and everything, those stay. And what's great is that I rarely pick my native flowers for the inside of the house because they're feeding people Whereas the roses, even, they will feed some people. Like there's a lot of flower flies, surfid flies, and some bees that go to the most open of the roses. But I don't ever feel bad picking the roses for the house because they're not as big a habitat providers for others. So (laughs) yeah, I I would say there is no one influence, but I learned something from every single person I interview or read.
0: Yeah. And is there any new plants in particular that are sparking your interest in that sort of native habitat, you know, world that you kind of haven't, that is new to you?
1: Well, there are a couple of new natives that I am trying this year. We're trying a native Eryngium, you know, We would call them sea holly, but this is native to this area, so sea doesn't really make sense. But (laughs) And so I'm hoping that that comes out nicely. And I have seeded several annual buckwheats. I'm a big fan of the areogonum diversity here in Northern California. So I have a couple in my front pollinator bed. And then I have a very sweet little new geum, which is not native. We have a native geum. This is not it. And so that's kind of a, a fun cut flower that I'm having fun with right now. And I have uh, beautiful marigold seeds that just germinated that uh, Rowan White sent out. And I'm excited about those to see what they
0: come out as. Wonderful. We were just speaking about Cultivating Place and you bring together so many different ideas and people in that program and also, I guess, in your writing. And so I was wondering, is there an overarching question almost that all of those people answer? Or do you have a set theme as you're moving forward when you're researching? i was just curious to know how you sort of choose those subjects. The
1: only overarching theme is that anybody that I agree to interview has to, in my mind, be doing something interesting in the way of horticulture in some form. Because the point is for my program to demonstrate over and over and over again the multiplicity and mosaic of what gardens mean and what gardeners look like and how they express that interest. So it has to be interesting to me in some way. And I think that if you or I were to sit down with any gardener, there would be something interesting, right? Yeah. And so sometimes that makes for some rough radio because (laughs) not everybody who's a great, interesting gardener also is comfortable being interviewed. But I think it's sometimes worth it to push through people that aren't natural interviewees to get to the content of their story. And now that I have been at this version of the program for over five years now, I think there is also a subtle, probably metric that I, I use that I want what I am putting out in front of my dedicated listeners. I want there to be of vetting on my side Mm -hmm. that these people are showing us a gardening that is improving our chances environmentally, economically, socially, that somehow there is that underlying gardening for the greater good as a part of the conversation and that they're pushing, they're expanding our own definition or preconceptions of what gardens do and are for the better, which is a judgment call. I mean, that is a a qualitative criteria that you can't define exactly, Mm -hmm. but I certainly know it when I don't see it, right? So when people come to me and say, I have this great new product or, Mm -hmm. you know, this large conglomerate is doing this XYZ. Don't you want to talk about it? And that's an like easy, hard pass for me. And I know that there are a million people I haven't interviewed that certainly would be worthy interviews. So yeah, and I, I try and take a global look so that I get a mix of male and female or non-gender voices. I get a mix of geographic locations. I get a mix of expressions so that it's not all
0: floristry or all art. Yeah. This reminds me of what you said earlier, just about gardening as being a little bit less of a, or not as valued as some of the other arts. And I was wondering in your sort of this larger lens that you have, do you think that is because over time it became kind of considered again, perhaps with the the same idea you are describing about the investment of, you know, of where money was going and where money was being sold to, that it became kind of the domain of the middle class woman and that it was no longer considered. It didn't have as much of that the value as art form. Yes. I think that
1: prescription around what it was being represented as definitely demeaned it. And I would also say that as that happened, the people who were engaged in gardening also like... Agreed to it tacitly and perpetuated that, you know. And so I will hear gardeners say over and over again, What did you do today? I didn't do anything. I, you know, I, I played in the garden like it was nothing. And I want to shake that. Up a lot and say it is up to us as gardeners to reclaim that language and reclaim the power of what we are actually doing because it's as important as sending our children to school or modeling to them that we sit down and read a book or that we go to a play or that we, you know, cook traditional foods or sing traditional songs and say traditional prayers. Like this is part of their cultural literacy. And it is up to us, those people who believe in it, that we re-elevate it to the position of, you know, like we, we encourage our society to think that it is important and valuable to go to church every week, to exercise every day, to eat healthy every day, to, you know, engage in community Building. Like, this is what gardening is also a part of. Mm -hmm. And so, if we demean it with our language or are not language about it, then that's on us. Mm -hmm. And if anyone's going to claim it back, it's got to be us. And I want to model to my children that it's as important to go spend time in the garden every day as it is to cook a healthy meal for your family or to go to church or to volunteer in the community or to have. A good job. Those are all valuable investments of our time and energy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm never saying that anybody has to be like an empire builder. No. But I really believe in the value of just. Me walking out to my front border that is on the sidewalk and cutting a few roses and happening to chat with, you know, the neighbor walking by about what's in bloom or what that bee is, that's as important as anything. And I remember during COVID, of course, all the households were, everybody was locked down and all the kids weren't going to school. And I kept seeing these like groups of families who would go around and they would clearly be like teaching school as they walked around the neighborhood yeah. and my little front border has one of those like little, you know, I'm a neighborhood habitat signs, in, yeah. it, which you know, <laughs> yeah. a little schmaltzy, yeah. but that's okay. <laughs> because I had two or three families that came by this little patch, you know, and it's maybe, gosh, Jill, it's like maybe three feet by 15 feet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a small space, but it's loaded with plants and flowers and bugs and yeah. birds. And they would come and have like a little class there. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Hell, that is what we're talking
0: about." Yeah, I love it, yeah, that's excellent. You've also, I think, tapped into um very directly into sort of what I've experienced, both as a parent and sort of wanting to share that more with my children, but also as shifting away from the what I was trained to do as a lawyer and wondering, why do I want to do this so much? Is it is it important? You know, it doesn't does it have value, right. does it matter? And why does it feel like it does in my heart, but not in my head somehow? So yes, yeah. It's very,
1: very direct. I was perhaps told one too many times that it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I would say that is a direct catalyst
0: for what I do and why I do it. Yeah. I was wondering also if you could speak a little bit about your wonderful book Under Western Skies with Caitlin Atkinson. It's such a gorgeous book. Yeah. If you could talk about how the interviews were conducted and selected and any favorite moments maybe.
1: It was such a privilege to be asked to take part in that book. And I had just finished writing and we were in the pre-production mode for The Earth in Her Hands. So then I was gearing up for the speaking tour of The Earth in Her Hands in middle 2019 when the editor at Timber Press and Caitlin approached me to be part of of this book with Caitlin. And I just thought to myself, I'm exhausted. I'm overscheduled. I'm not sure this is a great idea, but I so want to do this project because Mm -hmm. it was such a perfect complement to the earth in her hands, which was all about people and the garden. And this book, Under Western Skies, was all about reinforcing the importance of place in our gardens and of gardening to the benefit of our places and with our places in ways that did show not only beautiful gardens, but that these beautiful gardens were contributing to the health and well-being of the places and the communities of, of people and natural. I mean, we are natural, but the other than human, more than human lives, plants, water, rocks, insects, birds, everything. So Caitlin and I knew each other. I'd interviewed her before, and she had a few gardens already in mind that she had photographed before. And then because of the work that I do, I knew a lot of gardens and personal garden, you know, connections across the West. So between us, we were able to kind of put our network together and narrow down this list. I mean, we could have done so many more. One criteria was that everyone who was ultimately included in the book had to be an actual gardener. Mm -hmm. So there are some gardens that are pretty big, Pretty fancy that have garden help and had an outside designer, actually, you know, like a landscape architect do the design and the install, but the owner is still a very much a hands on gardener. So that was the first criteria. Mm -hmm. The second criteria was that they were not really well published gardens. So that these were new inspirations for people, not, you know, so like you'll look at the book and be, you know, kind of say, why don't you have the Denver Botanic Gardens? That's yeah. a fantastic Western garden. Why don't you have, you know, the Huntington or whatever? And so we were trying to introduce people to new gardens. And then we really wanted a spectrum of small Hand done, public, private, rural, urban, and mm-hmm. so there was this kind of putting together this puzzle of do we have a nice representation along these lines, and of course to not you know to have them be representative of a variety of cultural lenses as well. So talk about a project that it makes you think, oh, I want to, I want to have that garden, I want a garden just like that. Yes. <laughs> I want all of those plants and. I remember looking at the plant palette, you know, so I did, I had to do a lot of research on the first nation's influence in these areas, the actual geologic and hydrologic history of each of the garden areas, because I do think, you know, this is one of those areas where I think we as gardeners can push ourselves to reach a little higher in our own understanding is I I do feel as though it's important that we all know what our geologic and soil basis and, Mm -hmm. you know, what watershed do we live in? Mm -hmm. Where does that water come from? Where does it go? So that we are, personally invested in the health of it as well. So I, I had to do all of that kind of research for each of these gardens, which you know was hugely interesting to me. And then I had to identify, or working with the gardeners, identify the primary wild native ecosystems that they were growing in, mm-hmm. and then what their plant palettes were. So, I mean, my own plant identification education yes. This exploded exponentially. And I remember trying to do the plant IDs for the garden in Marfa, called the mm-hmm. Marfa Garden in Marfa, Texas. And it just such a different, that's the Chihuahuan Desert and just the different plant palette. Because you sort of think, oh, you know, it's a Western garden. I've got to know some of the plants, yeah. but, you know, it was great. I learned so many new plants. So I think that was some of the, the greatest fun.
0: That's fantastic. It's really a broad range, and it's the combination of the beautiful photographs and the biographies Uh, and the yeah everything. It's if I have a little front garden space that I am reworking, and it's like it's going to be all all cactus. No, 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 no. It's going to (laughs) be the
1: exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that was was exactly. I'm like I kept like looking at the pictures and you know doing the the interviews, and I think Caitlin's concept for the book was Mm -hmm. genius, but her photography is just gorgeous. And it does remind us that when you say like Western garden, it isn't about like lava rock and a cactus. Like there are so many ways to do a heavily native plant garden that is so individualistic and like has strong design. Yes. I think that was one of the great achievements of her photography with each of these gardens. But I kept showing the different photographs or different interview points to my partner, John, and being like, and we need to get a lot of this plant. And yeah. we need to get a lot of this plant. And he was like, oh, okay, all right, exactly, okay. That's so
0: it was fun, really fun. And as a, a Northern California gardener and very conscious of water, I was intrigued by how many of the gardens, especially in our area, as it were, but also kind of the broader, you know, into the, maybe not not as far south or into the true desert, but in sort of similar climate zones had a kind of mixed garden. You know, they had spaces that were not irrigated and then a few that were irrigated and then had some sort of rules about irrigation. I thought that was, gave me a lot of ideas kind of, or realized that I was doing the same thing kind of like, oh, that's not just something I made up sort of.
1: Right. No. And it's, it's so fun because then we really do put together. I mean, I think this was one of the great powers of working on the, book was like everything is disastrous. Everything is terrible. Like everything (laughs) is in crisis. But when you look at this map of all of these different people trying in their own spaces to use less water, to use no chemicals, to add habitat, to add food, to add beauty, and to get their own personal joy and fulfillment out of this space, you're like, that is not nothing. Like that is a cohort of people that really are making a difference. And so if we can just keep expanding that we have more beautiful gardens that are more you know ecologically functional and are you know making a dent in some of the impacts that aren't good in what gardens do and that really creative hybrid water use you know so there were gray water systems and there were really interesting water harvesting and as you say those different zones so that you know there were some completely no water. But I think one of the take homes for me was that there isn't just one way. And again, there is no silver bullet. And so everybody's different hybrid model was an inspiration for what can you do? It gave everybody, anybody who would read it an opportunity to say, oh, I like that one. That idea will actually work for my time, my space, my water, my plants. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. And again, to sort of reiterate the habitats that were created, so a number of the gardens were described or I know where they're located sort of as being near, you know, kind of a natural woodland or natural space sort of that's untended and how those tended gardens it's actually were probably more robust kind of, you know, sources of nectar and all those things because they were, again, cultivated. Yeah, yeah. And did you visit the gardens at the same time that Caitlin photographed them? Like, were you there at the same moment? Okay. I was curious how you sort of wrote about them.
1: Which is super sad, but the economic constraints of the job were that they did not have funds for me to travel. So Mm -hmm. I have never been to a significant number of these gardens in person. Um, I probably have visited... If there are 40 gardens in Mm -hmm. 36 chapters, I have probably visited 20 of the gardens. And I've been to at least one of the gardens in each of the the areas, so I had Mm -hmm. a feel for it. But it was me on Google Earth. A lot. (laughs) And me talking to Caitlin and saying, okay, but so what does it feel like when you drive in the driveway? And I remember writing one of the profiles and she called me and she's like, okay, we have some serious tweaking to do because the reality is like, it looks like this, but when you first drive in, you're actually driving through this bizarrely manicured suburb. (laughs) And which totally changes how you then see this garden when you enter it. So there was a lot of back and forth like that where Caitlin would help me to refine how I had described something to make it more accurate. But yeah, there was a lot of me like stalking people in overview on Google Earth and being like, "Oh,
0: look at that's interesting." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> someone found your your you know computer log. Like, what is this person up to? <laughs> and for Earth in her hands, again, just such a pleasure with such a, a wide range of professions and people and sort of roads traveled. um, I was wondering if there were any patterns that you saw in these stories, you know, not necessarily that everyone shared, but any that kind of bubbled up for you and you realized, oh, everyone is dealing with this kind of issue. Again, like such an education and a privilege to work
1: on that book and be immersed in that particular group of women and their work in the world at that exact political moment in Mm -hmm. time, if you can think back to that. And it was incredibly hopeful to to be reminded that there are so, so many good humans on the ground moving the needle where they are and however Mm -hmm. they can. One of the most interesting themes to me was almost without exception, Every single one of these women who are all actively working in the world of horticulture, either directly or tangentially, you know, an adjacent field. So uh, public policy that then defines, you know, horticulture or public gardens or regenerative agriculture or herbalism or floristry, whatever it might be, photography and writing were there. Almost every one of them, and this was a criteria for me in narrowing down who actually were the 75 women, not only were doing great horticultural work and were active in their profession, but had then attached their work in horticulture to improve something bigger in our world, whether Mm -hmm. that was food security or seed sovereignty or, you know, social justice or how we see gardens or, you know, what we write about gardens as influencing. So I'll give you an example of that. When I was looking at uh, English garden writers there are a whole handful of english garden writers or designers who are doing outstanding work like you know and that's true in canada and australia and japan and in india and in the us like but i'm just giving you a, one example i had to pick i couldn't mm-hmm. do them all so i had to have one or two that were not only doing great work but were taking that work and pushing a boundary with it mm-hmm. and so I came up with choosing Anna Pavord was one of them. Alice Fowler was one of them. And Arabella Lennox Boyd was one of them. And you might look at someone like Arabella Lennox Boyd and say, she is a fancy, wealthy, white landscape architect. Like, what are you pushing here? But she had also been on the board of directors or trustees for Kew Gardens and for the Millennium Seed project and for the Wakehurst Arboretum. And she had started her own arboretum on her personal land. And so and she had also served on the board of directors or judges for the Chelsea Flower Show mm-hmm. in helping to define like what are we looking for in excellent gardens and what are we striving to do with those gardens. So mm-hmm. yes, she was all of those first things, but she had taken that part of her career and used it to then influence and grow these other areas like public policy, like what public gardens are doing with their funds and for their audience. Audiences, So that, you know, and Anna Pavord, again, there are a whole group of very interesting, very talented women who could have been included. But I settled on Anna Pavord because of her book, The Tulip, took what we consider to be garden writing, acceptable, traditional, regular garden writing, and she exploded it with The Tulip, which contextualized plant collecting and floristry as an important like agent in our social history and so like all of a sudden she showed us that the plants were important and the plant world was important to our economies to our you know societal developments for better or worse i'm not saying it was all great like but she showed it in a way that nobody had done it before and that changed what we then expected out of Garden Writers. But I would say, you know, bar none, every single one of these women were doing work that they thought would change something that was personally important to them. Rowan White is, you know, raising what we understand cultural seed literacy to be. Mm Vandana Shiva is changing what we see traditional agriculture and seed sovereignty to be. They were all interested in changing something they were worried about in the world through their garden work. You know, Leah Penniman and Soul Fire Farm. Mm-hmm,
0: yes. Claire
1: Cooper Marcus is who I'm talking about. Literally like developed the world of evidence-based garden design in horticultural and medical facilities. In her 70s and 80s, you know, like, so it was phenomenal, actually, to see the power they had because of something they cared about,
0: and how they then hinged it to what they were doing in horticulture. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. That book very much influenced the question that I will ask you next, which is, how do you think we can bring more people into the garden with this sort of lens that you have, both of the individuals and gardens? We just keep talking. You
1: know, Jill talks to her audience and interviews her people, and Jennifer does the same, and Deborah Princing does the same, and Leah Peniman does the same, and Rowan White does the same, and you know Margaret Roach does the same, and we just keep uplifting everyone who's doing this kind of work and it's like compounded interest in a bank account. Like it will Mm -hmm. grow, it will grow and people will hear and they will hear it more than once and they will hear it a little differently. And then finally, and my only hope is right. Like we just had a survey come out from the national gardening association that prior to COVID. So in the like 2018 census, this is Mm -hmm. a statistic I use all the time in my talks, In the 2018 census, it indicated that 38% of all households engaged in gardening. That's 49 million households. Mm. The National Gardening Association just released a survey right now in February of 2022 100 million households now engage in gardening in the U S self-reported. That's what they are engaged in gardening. Now that could be a pot of basil on your kitchen Mm -hmm. windowsill, which is great. That could be, you know, your one acre out in, you know, the exurbs with, I don't know. I don't know exactly what that means, but if 100 million households are now engaged in gardening, then it's up to us as the gardeners to support them and share with them and help direct them to keep them involved in those ways that do make a positive benefit to our
0: economies, cultures, communities, selves, families. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It's probably no surprise, but you have done very much that for me. So thank you again. It is such a pleasure to have you here and learn a little bit more about all it is that makes what you do.
1: Well, I so appreciate the time and I want to end because I tend to get so preachy. Like (laughs) I truly, truly believe that our greatest... Our greatest asset as gardeners is just the fact that we love it and it gives us joy and it feeds our souls. So if we can share that little spark of energy with anybody, that's our greatest, that is our greatest asset.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Inviting people in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at VioletEarStudio.com.